welcome to another podcast episode of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Indigenous Roots and Hoots is about Indigenous people and culture, past and present, success stories and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today, whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities throughout Canada. Our aim is to create a better awareness about Indigenous people to help bridge the gap of understanding for the reconciliation process in Canada to grow. Today's guest is William Taguna. William lives in Kujuwak, Nunavik, Quebec. Originally from Baker Lake, William is a member of one of the first Inuit rock bands called The Harpoons. He is a renowned musician who has also released solo albums, and his musical style has often been described as Inuit country western. William is a residential school survivor, a CBC broadcaster journalist, and a natural storyteller. In this episode, William and Gordon discuss much of the history of Nunavut, of the Northwest Territories, and what was formerly known as Arctic Quebec, now Nunavik, as well as the responsibility he has to Indigenous youth today. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to this episode podcast on Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is William Taguna from Kujuak, Quebec. Good afternoon, William. How are you today? Good. Very good. Hi, Gordon. Nice to uh, speak with you. Yes. Maybe we'll start by uh, you telling us a bit about your family background, like where you grew up and where you live today. I know you're from originally from Baker Lake, but I don't know much about, I know you live in Kujuak now. You've been there for uh, over 30 years, 30 some odd years. Tell us a bit about Kujuak and uh, maybe the demographics of that place and where it's located. Yeah, Kujuak uh, is in Quebec. It's in the area of Quebec that's called uh, Nunavik. Uh, in, back in the federal days, when the area was still under the federal government, they actually called it Arctic Quebec. It was the Arctic Quebec of the region, of the province. And of course, in Arctic Quebec, that's where you'll find uh, the Inuit. The majority of the people are Inuit. Many years ago, we were, of course, called the Eskimos. I'd say about 35, 40 years ago, we were still called the Eskimos. And, and of course, uh, I'm not originally from the Quebec area. I'm originally from the Northwest Territories, uh, Baker Lake, Northwest Territories. Nunavut. Uh, yeah, now Nunavut. It eventually became Nunavut. At the time uh, when I was born, it was still the Northwest Territories. And when we went to uh, residential schools, we were still part of the Northwest Territories. And it was only because of those people that uh, went to residential schools that do we have Nunavut now. If it wasn't for the people that went to those residential schools, I think you still have one big territory, the Northwest Territories. With uh, that goes from one part of Canada in the north to the other. But, uh, you know, back in the, the uh, late 50s and 60s, we were sent off to uh, residential schools. And uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's how the landscape changed. It was those people that went to the resi residential schools and were uh, abused. And they right. wanted to have a better life. So they uh, got together very politically. And that's how we have Nunavut now. 
Right. And so that's where I'm originally from, uh, Gordon. Yeah, Baker Lake. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to just ask you about uh, a little bit more about Kujuak. Uh, specifically, it was called Fort Chimo, wasn't it at one time? Yeah, you know, back in uh, the war, World War II, the American army, of course, came in and they established themselves in some key points up in the Arctic because they want to protect themselves from uh, northern invasion, the uh, Germans coming in through the northern route, sneaking in. So they set up uh, a bunch of uh, airports, built a bunch of airports. In, in the north, and most of them, they all called them forts. Uh, we have Crystal One and Crystal Two. There's Fort Churchill, there's Fort, uh, uh, Fort Chimo, and it came from that era. The American right. military was around and they established the, uh, the runway, but it's not exactly for where Fort Chimo is. Fort Chimo was, the, the original area was uh, too small to build a, a runway. So the American uh, military built another runway on the other side of the river, five miles up, and um, called it Fort Chimo. And so that's when I came in, uh, in 1974, uh, that was the, the community that I knew, Fort Chimo. Right. But of course, uh, I've heard about Fort Chimo many years before that in residential school in Churchill, Manitoba. It's a great yeah. place to live. Very different environment. It's a, it's a tree line. The trees are, uh, we're, we're right at the, the border of the trees, just right at Kujo, as it's called now, are the trees. And just north of us, uh, uh, two miles, it's tundra. So right. right at the border. Yeah. Do you, uh, you're right at the tree line. So, uh, you're also in the vicinity of the Cree country. Any uh, Crees uh, live in Kujuak? Uh, used to be, uh, it used to be the Niskapis used to come up. When I came up in 74, they had already left. The Niskapis had gone back down to uh, Shefferville, right. to uh, Fort Mackenzie. But uh, my father-in-law, who was Bob May Sr., uh, used to be a postmaster in uh, George River, and he set up uh, a business around Fort Chimo, and he used to tell me about the Niskapis, that they would walk all the way to Fort Chimo from uh, Fort Mackenzie, which is uh, way in the heck, way up the river, uh, mm -hmm. very close to uh, Shefferville. That's, yeah. that's a long ways to walk, and they would come in and live around with the Inuit for the summer and when fall would come, they would walk back to uh, inland with all of the stuff on their backs. They were amazing walkers. And we have remnants of uh, the uh, Niskapi being in Fort Chimo, mixing in with the Inuit, marrying in with the Inuit and having children. So we oh. have people in Kutjua uh, that uh, look very much like a, a Niskapi that they they're Inuit. They speak Inuktitut, and, and so yeah, there's a uh, quite a history with the uh, uh, Niskapis. Yes, very interesting. Yeah, uh, you're a residential school survivor. Attended residential school in Churchill, Manitoba. How long were you there, and what was your experience like? I um, I went there back in 1964. I was 12 years old. I had just turned 12 when um, 
it was uh, just being opened in 1964, the Churchill Residential School. And it would have been the very first time that the federal government ever got Inuit from all across the North into one central location. This has never been done before. They brought in people from uh, Arctic Quebec, which is now called Nunavik. They brought in uh, P uh, Inuit, uh, all youngsters uh, from uh, Baffin Island. At the time it was called Baffin Island, which is the largest island we have in the Arctic inhabited by uh, Inuit. They had people from uh, the Kibandan region, called the Kiwain region at the time, and a very few people from the Central Arctic, because they were Central Arctic were sent off around Inuvik at the time. So uh, back in 1964, uh, we finally met the Inuit from other regions. We never knew there was Inuit past our borders. We thought we were the only ones in the whole planet. And we started to meet uh, other Inuit that we couldn't really understand their dialect. They had a different Inuit dialect. I'm from Baker Lake, so I was very much had my own uh, Baker Lake dialect. And people came in from uh, Fort Chival, such as Willie Watt and the, uh, then the Charlie Watt that you probably heard of. And they were all speaking a different dialect. And the uh, people from uh, North Baffin, uh, we couldn't really understand it. So, we all switched to English. We could all understand English. And that's how that came about, that uh, we really started to communicate with each other in English. Yeah. Although you'd speak to your own clan in your own language, because uh, at the time, you know, we've heard so much about uh, uh, indigenous people not allowed to speak their own language in the school or they'd be punished. And I've gone through that myself too, and uh, have been uh, beat up a number of times because when it's your only way of communicating, you have no other recourse but to use the only language you know. So in Churchill, when we went over there, it was a bit different from being back home with the teachers and speaking with them. This time around, we were uh, very much cooped up in uh, very much like a military style. The, uh, the residence itself used to be uh, military barracks. Because uh, you know, Fort Churchill was started by the American military and they built themselves barracks for, the, for their army uh, regiments. And so when they pulled out, those buildings were there and the federal government took them over and put Inuit students some of the, yeah, the youngest one that I knew was 11 years old. And the oldest ones were about 18 years old. So oh. we had a, a mixture. They were, they were all very young and all very lonely and all very scared. So right. We were away from mom and dad. You're a singer and a songwriter. It seems like you started your music career at an early age. I think you started out when you were at Churchill, if I'm correct on that. How did you get started or when did you discover you wanted to be a musician, singer, songwriter? I'm a product of an Anglican minister. My dad was the first um, Eskimo Anglican minister in, uh, in the Eastern Arctic. He was ordained as Anglican minister back in 1959. Being raised by uh, a priest, 
uh, we went to church a lot. And when I was in church, there's a lot of singing. And the singing was always the best part of uh, going to church for me. I uh, didn't really read syllabics, but when they start to sing, I could be a part of the congregation. I was about seven, eight, nine, about there. And I would sing my heart out. <laughs> <laughs> These are uh, religious songs. And my mom and dad, who are long gone now, they still said, you know, William, when you were very young, you, uh, you used to just shout in the right. church. Uh, keep uh, yeah, you didn't make any sense at all, but man, you sang. <laughs> well, that's where I started singing. Yeah. And then uh, when we went to residential school, a number of the boys, my brother, Eric, my older brother, Eric, and Josie Kushuak, the famous Josie Kushuak, the one that came out with Canadian first and first Canadian. He's now in a postage stamp, as a matter of fact. He he was our drummer, and his brother, Joseph Michael Kushuak, who is a children book writer, a famous one in Canada as well, was the other lead guitarist and a singer. Yeah. And then sure. John Tapatai from uh, Baker Lake, who's now gone as well, was the, uh, the bass player. So we started a band back in 1965. And of course, you know, in those years, you're not supposed to speak in your own language. You know, we were being told it's an inferior language. So we just copied songs. We sang songs from the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And we uh, stayed together for two years. And they say that we were the very first band ever in the history of this country. We were called the Harpoons. The harpoons, yes. Harpoons, what a name! Notice, yeah, very appropriate. I saw a photo of you on the, on one of the uh, social media outlets, and uh, it looked like you were like thirteen years old or something like that. And uh, everybody else seemed older than you, and you were the singer. You were the lead singer, and uh, I thought that was that was pretty amazing. And of course, I know your brother, uh, Eric, and. Uh, and uh, Josie was actually, uh, I worked for Josie at IT, was ITC at the time, it's now ITK. Okay. Yeah, uh, wonderful person. All, all of them, the other guy I didn't know, but all the Inuit that I worked with and been around, all wonderful people, such as yourself. You're also a journalist and produced several magazines and newsletters, including Inuit Today, Takralik. What inspired you to get into journalism? I think residential school again. Uh, just yeah. as, I, as I said in the beginning, you know, it was a residential school that drove us, the people that were there at the time to look for uh, our own territory. And that became Nunavut. And in Quebec, it was uh, residential schools that drove people like Zebedee Nungup and Charlie Watt to uh, settle land claims back in 1975 to try and find a, a better space for our people. And in journalism, I want to get in there because I want to find a way of assimilating information to our people of what they needed to keep going up the ladder to uh, more independence. So back in 1972, I joined the federal government in Ottawa as an information officer. 
I joined the federal government. I heard that I think I was the very first information officer I was ever hired by the federal government. And so I worked with them in Ottawa for one year, and then they transferred me to Yellowknife back in 1972. And I worked with the federal government uh, as an information officer for two years, traveled all over the Arctic, uh, promoting oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after that, Charlie, I got a phone call from Montreal. Uh, you know, during that time, 73, 74, around there, we used to hear a lot about the, the James Bay Project in Quebec and how the uh, Native peoples were uh, rallying against it and were very opposed to it because it was going to uh, erode their way of life forever. That's the hydro project, right? Yeah, the hydro project. Yeah, I was in Yellowknife, and of course, I was with other people that are interested in information. And most of my friends in Yellowknife were Dene. I just naturally uh, hooked up with the Dene people because they were they're like I am. Yeah. So we talked about this kind of stuff of what's happening in Quebec and how our uh, brothers and sisters in Quebec are being threatened. And by behold, I get a phone call one day from uh, from Quebec. It was Charlie Watt. The senator. He said, yeah, he became a senator. Yeah. yeah. He, at the time, he was the, the leader of the Inuit of oh, okay. uh, Quebec. Yeah. And he said, William, because um, I knew Charlie from residential school in Churchill, yeah. Manitoba. He said, we're just about to get into a very tough negotiations with Quebec and with Hydro-Quebec on land claims, and we sure would like your help. We hear that you're involved in communications and we're gonna need a person like you. Would you be willing to move to Montreal? And I said, yes, when do you want me? <laughs> it's something I always wanted. I was fascinated by the, yeah. the fight that the Crees and the Inuit were uh, going through in, uh, in Quebec. Yeah, okay. You, all, you worked for CBC for 30 years. I guess that was this, this part of your uh, your information officer gig as a information officer. You worked for CBC for 30 years. How was your time there? When did you, yeah. are you still with them or did you retire? Yeah, I had a, a tremendous time uh, with the CBC. What an experience that was. And yeah. I, I joined the CBC to better myself so I can be a better information person. I've always looked up to the CBC and I've watched them um, on television and it was the only radio we had, you know, the CBC that uh, actually had a broadcast in our own language and I've always admired them. And then um, one day I get a call from uh, Josie Kushua, who was now the CBC manager in Rankin Inlet. And he called and said, William, you know, I've been thinking a lot about you and, and about the work that you've done in uh, the field of journalism. You've written for magazines, started magazines, and we sure could use a guy like you at the CBC, Inuktitut Service. Would you be interested? I didn't answer right away because, man, I was comfortable in, in uh, Fort Chamel. I was married yeah. to a, a girl from this area and we already 
I had a child and I really didn't feel like moving. So he called again one time and said, William, would you be interested in coming to Rankin Inlet? And I thought, I said, hey, maybe I'll go just for a couple of years so that I can learn how they do their, how they come out with their radio broadcast and how they write their stories. So I moved to Rankin. Little did I know that I'd be there for the next 30 years. Wow. Time just seems to fly when you're when you're working at something that you get so involved in. I was so involved in becoming a journalist and working in English and in Inuit and doing stories for uh, uh, Ottawa radio in Ottawa, doing stories for Toronto, for the national and for the north that uh, I totally got entrenched in it. And I've yeah. never looked back. I, I do it all over again. And I was there for 30 years. Wow. I, I gave myself two years. It became 30 years. And I said, ah, this is enough. I need to go back. So I need to get out and do something different. Yeah, yeah. So I thought you spent most of your uh, your journalist years with CBC in Kujuak. So I didn't know that it wasn't Rankin that you spent this time. And so what? So you moved back to Kujuak around what year? It was, uh, I was with the CBC in um, Rankin Inlet and Echaluit. It was called Frobisher Bay at the time. Right, yeah. And when I was in Frobisher Bay, that's when I really got into working for CBC News, where uh, yeah. I had to do uh, voicers, what's called a voicer. You're given a minute and a half, and you'd be on the world reports all across the country in Canada and uh, and the world at six. And I got very involved, and it, it hooks you. Yeah. I knew that everybody in Canada was hearing my pieces, and mm -hmm. I'm doing stories about my people. And I said, this is exactly where I've always wanted to be, to yeah. tell my people's story on a national network. Yeah. So uh, I, I traveled over to Yellowknife and over to Alaska, to Greenland, to uh, cover stories for the national radio. And then uh, eventually an opportunity came to open a bureau in Kujok. Yeah. So I jumped at it. I said, you know, my wife is from Kujok. I know she'd love to be back with her uh, mom and dad in Kujok. And so... We opened the bureau in Kujok back in 1987, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And that bureau is still existing today. It's still broadcasting from Monday to Friday in Inuktitut. It was yeah. something that Joseph Kujok and I fought for, and, and we got it. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, you know, William, today we hear a lot about people uh you know, it seems to me like times are changing for Indigenous people in Canada for the better, you know, finally for the better. The tide seems to be changing and we're getting more recognition, more respect from the non-Indigenous population. And there's a lot of talk about uh, reconciliation and making Canada a better place to live. I'm interested in hearing your, your views of how you feel about re reconciliation and what it means to you. Yeah, those of us that we hope that the stories that we told about life back in the 40s or 50s got through to our young people. 
because, you know, they're the ones that are carrying the torch right now. Uh, when I watch our uh, uh, young people and how they're dealing with reconciliation, you know, we can only be so proud of them. And their strength has to come from the reality of what happened 50, 60 years ago. So even though they're on the front lines right now, uh, people my age, I'm 70 years old, 70. I have a responsibility still today to pass on what we went through at the time so they can take that information and uh, present their case. As you know, the establishments of today are gonna try and tell them, it's not true. What you're saying is not true. That yeah. never happened in reconciliation. We know that's going to happen. It's already happening, whether we're talking about rejuvenating our language so that it doesn't disappear and our culture. And they're going to need uh, some of the stories right from us. So uh, reconciliation to me is something that we have always dreamt about. You know, just a, like we dreamt about creating a Nunavut. That was just a dream that eventually happened because People really sacrifice themselves. Inuit really sacrifice themselves. And we can name people that are not around anymore because of the sacrifice they gave to creating a Nunavut. The same thing is for reconciliation, where we can finally get the Canadians to understand what we're all about and why we want our rightful place and why we absolutely believe that we have special rights. Those are rights that we got from thousands of years of living a culture in the country. And those rights just have to be prevailed. I've, I've had people coming up to me and say, why should you be special to what we are? And I've always said, what, it is, what is it that you don't have that uh, you think you should have that you've always had in this country for uh, thousands of years? And they said, oh, okay, I think I'm starting to get you now. So yeah. reconciliation to me is so that we can live our own lives with our own economy. And it's starting to happen in a very good way with our own government. And I'd still like to see the prime minister of this country rise in the House of Commons and apologize and confirm that colonialism really existed in this country and he apologizes to all the Canadians for having been part of practicing it. We've never seen them apologize yet. They do say that it, it was around, and it is around, but never an apology where we can really hear them say and acknowledge that it really was part of what they want to do to completely destroy the, the indigenous person in this country. Genocide. Genocide, yeah. You want yeah. to hear that right from the, the top leader. When I yeah. watch the, uh, if I can just add one more little thing. When I watch the, uh, the funeral in England with Queen Elizabeth, and we saw all the glamour that was in the church, like it was really amazing to watch that when they went into the church. Yeah. What came to my mind was, this is it. This is the... The monarchy, and I'm not talking against the, uh, 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 the royal family one bit, uh, not at all. Yeah. But it was the first time I ever seen them all in one room. And I wow. told myself, this 
it's the establishment that hurt us so much back in the day. My dad, my mom, this was it. Yeah. Thousands of miles away. And I don't even really think they knew what they had done. So that's what threw my mind. Yeah. 166 years of residential schools from 1831. And I think the last one closed down in 1997, somewhere in that, that time frame. Colonialism like really took control of our lives, indigenous people's lives. And so many generations have suffered, you know, had such hardships over those years. I never realized residential schools were, were around since 1831 which is quite incredible. Like most Canadians, most people don't even, don't even realize that. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's just kind of shows how resilient we are as peoples, you know, indigenous peoples in this country. I want to uh, kind of close this off by maybe talk a little bit about your, you're a musician, a great singer. I've heard so many of your songs and and, uh, you know, people in, in Nunavut, all, actually all across Arctic Canada, I think even Greenland, Alaska, you know, you performed in many of those places and sang, you know, sang your songs. And I know you wrote, you know, most of the songs that, that are on, been on your albums. You've, I think you got like three or four albums. Uh, you recently reproduced another one of, of your songs. Tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe put a plug in for you on, uh, on your music, and then we'd like you to sing a song. You're probably not equipped to do that right now, but uh, we'll play one of your songs. If you could send us a link or something, we'll uh, we'd like to end this podcast by uh, playing one of one of your songs. Yeah, yeah. I've always looked at music as what's going to save our language. When we're indigenous people, it's uh, it's through music that we're going to uh, get very proud of our language. And when I started to sing in Inuktitut back in the 1970s, I, I knew that it was the youth is where you're going to find them through your music. And I wrote a letter to the territorial government, to the CBC at the time, and told them that, you know, uh, governments are throwing in millions of dollars to try and save our language, but they're putting not even one penny into music. I said, that's where you're, that's how you're going to save the language is by uh, promoting uh, our own music and our own language. And I truly, yeah. truly believe that back in 74, I used to spend uh, time with the great Willie Dunn in Montreal. Oh yeah. He was really one of my heroes. And to me, he was like a Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, that sang about our issues. And uh, Gordon, uh, well, Willie used to uh, come to our place in Montreal and just hang out, uh, have a beer or two. And I've been in Greenland with him as well. Sumi from Greenland. So musicians have always sort of uh, hung around together and compare notes. And, and I'm happy that today you hear so much of our youth singing in our own language now on radio as if it was always there, you know? It wasn't always there. We have to really fight for that and mm -hmm. uh, totally believe in it. And, and uh, as I told somebody before, you know, that time changes continually. 
the 19th yeah. can't come back. But if you listen to a, an album by somebody that recorded back in 60, the 60s do come back. And that's the only way that we can do it. And today, one of my first albums I had a recorded in 1977 is still being uh, played in the uh, community radios because uh, uh, they believe in the lyrics about having to stand up. I've always tried to write positive uh, stories when I wrote my music. So I'm happy that even today, and in Greenland particularly, Greenlanders uh, really seem to enjoy our stuff. So yeah. that's always been a plus. We know that our message is getting through. Yeah. The Greenlanders also have beautiful music. Listen oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I, I use really some like of them. Yeah, yeah, I used to have two of them in my in my recordings. I re recorded my a song that I wrote uh, back in '78 about my mother. It's called Ananaga, and that one went right across the country uh, in Greenland. It was a, a hit for uh, many many months, and uh, I asked Greenlanders to uh, harmonize with me. So it's on that new album. We redid it. And I'm so proud of that song. It's a song about uh, my mother being so proud of her. When I first started writing the song, it was about my father. And I said, why are we always putting up our dads when our mother did so much for us? So right. I switched to Ananaga, and there it was. Wow. Yeah, it's a thank you. What, yeah, what's the, uh, what's the name of the album? The, the album is called Takuwepki which means when I see you, it, it's, it's, uh, it's about my dad. That one is a song about my dad when I see mm -hmm. the very first track on the album. And I'm so proud of that song too, because you know, many of us, uh, as we get older, we start to look more and more like our father. <laughs> right. And so yeah. this song is uh, saying that, you know, when I wake up in the morning and I look at myself in the mirror, I think I see you, Dad. I think I yeah. see you. Wow. And it's a true story. Sometimes I look in the mirror in the morning and, and I almost have a shock. I think my <laughs> dad just came back to life. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So it's the first a song. Story. I know. Yeah. Takuapikik or something like that. Yeah. Takuapikik. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Ananaga. We'll play that if you don't mind following this podcast. So we'll kind yeah, of end, please uh, do. I'm so proud. Yeah. 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 We've been talking to William Taguna from Kujuak, uh, Quebec. He's a former CBC journalist, uh, residential school survivor, and a musician. On behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation, William, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this with us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Gord.
project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Music is provided by David Finkel. For more episodes like this and to learn more about the work we are doing, please visit www.legacyofhope.ca to learn more.